I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll break down the effects tariffs have had on the U.S. and China. Plus, we'll discuss new developments to the Endless Frontiers Act in the United States Senate, recently renamed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Then, the trade guys will talk about the U.S.-EU tariff truce and the future of the transatlantic relationship. And finally, we'll talk about the latest disputes under USMACA. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trey, guys, we're looking at some headlines that say U.S. companies are bearing the brunt of President Trump's China tariffs. This is according to Moody's. And what about this, guys? I mean, this is something you guys have been saying for a long time. Did it take a while for Moody's to catch up to the trade, guys? Well, it, yeah. <laughs> I love these stories because it demonstrates once again that the trade guys are always right. Yep. <laughs> The difference is when we said it, there was no data, right? Uh, you know, and in effect, we just made it up at the time, but we knew what was going to happen. And what Moody's has done is produce data that demonstrates that, yeah, we got it right. You know, Trump was wrong. The Chinese don't pay for the tariffs. The importer pays the tariffs. And most of the time, then uh, the importer passes it on to the consumer. So the data here is U.S. importers absorb more than 90 percent of additional costs resulting from the 20% U.S. tariff on Chinese goods. That's the data. Well, look, Bill's correct that we were right, but I take issue that we made this up because <laughs> what we right. did was based, right. we based our conclusion off every other time tariffs have been raised. Right. And what we know is, you know, that's how economics works. Trade economics is the tariffs are paid by the ultimate consumer. Right. We extrapolated and were correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so the record is straight. The trade guys do not make things up. We analyze. Well, we based, didn't in this case. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we analyze based on real data and facts and historical trends. So that's good to know. That's the way it works. Now, the real question is what, what happens next? And you would love to, to be in a situation where you identify an ineffective government policy one that had the opposite effect as the, the politician predicted. Politician predicted China would pay for the tariffs. In fact, it's American consumers who are paying for the tariffs. In that circumstance, you would love to see the tariffs lifted because that's the sensible thing to do. However, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, the, the only thing in life that's permanent is a temporary government program. And uh, getting rid of a tariff is actually harder than it sounds like it should be. Mostly because they, any government action creates a constituency for that action. And you leave them in place long enough, then they're almost impossible to get rid of. Tough to flip the switch on and off, as you guys always say. Well, they're around for a while, too, because I, I don't think anybody wants to have a negotiation right now about it. I mean, I, I think the, the Biden people realize the other axiom of trade is there's no free lunch. Despite the fact, as we were saying before we started, I just got one yesterday. For the most part, there's not a free lunch. And, you know, the United States is not going to eliminate the tariffs for nothing. They will expect Chinese concessions to eliminate the tariffs. That's the way the trade business works. But if you're going to do that, you have to have a negotiation. And my sense right now is neither side particularly wants to have a negotiation. You know, the, the Biden administration's goals with China are not that different from Trump's. 
you know, eliminate forced technology transfer, get rid of subsidies, get rid of discrimination against foreign companies, all these things that we've been talking about for the last year or so. And I don't think the Chinese are anxious to have a negotiation, which consists of us making a whole bunch of demands they won't agree to. And I don't think Biden wants to have a negotiation that's going to fail. So for the time being, I think the status quo prevails. Let me see if I have this right, okay? If I understood this correctly, we don't want to negotiate away something that's hurting American consumers because, because what? That would be a good question to ask Ambassador Tai. Who's being confirmed, right? But I can tell you definitively, based on her most recent performance of last week, when she testified before the House and the Senate, I know what she'll say, which is, well, that's under review. Everything she's asked has been under review. And uh, the gossip is that the China policy will be under review probably until next January or February because they want to spend a year talking to allies to see if there's common ground here, which is a good idea, you know, and important, but takes time. And it will also allow phase one to run its course for good or for ill. And I mean, Scott's right about it damaging Americans. At the same time, you know, my sense in talking to businesses, they've kind of gotten used to it. This is the kind of case where you you disturb the equilibrium and then there's a new equilibrium that gets created. You know, people adjusted and they change their supply chains or they raise their prices or they, you know, cut China out of the equation or they, you know, they did something else. And now, like, there's a new normal. And uh, so if you ask people, what do you think about the tariffs? They'll say, oh, that's that's they're really terrible. But the fact is, Everybody's learned to live with them. Guys, let me ask you this. So the China tariff issue that we've been talking about, there's a current thing going on in the United States Senate, the Endless Frontiers Act. How does that relate to all this? I think it's a much better approach. This is a, I think, last count, 1,445-page bill. How, how many pages? 1,445. Has anybody read all those pages? Well, I can tell you I haven't. It came out last night, and okay. I went through it uh, looking for oddities quickly, and, and there are some. But uh, what you, we will see over the next few days are a series of newspaper reports from reporters who do read it all and will point out all the little anomalies that are in it. I think the overall thrust of it is constructive and, and consistent with what the administration proposed in the sense that it focuses on the running faster part of the equation rather than tripping the other guy part of the equation. A lot of it is money, uh, money for the CHIPS Act to support semiconductors, money on innovation, right. money on R&D, you know, money for uh, U.S. leadership and standard development, a whole bunch of good things. Yeah. So the idea behind this, the basic idea behind this is that the, the act would authorize uh, more than $110 billion dollars for basic and advanced technology research over five years in the face of rising competitive pressures from China. And on Monday of this week, the Senate voted 86 to 11 to open debate. So there is some bipartisan consideration here that they want to do something on this, no? Yes. And it appears that over in the intervening period, they've begun to cut deals on the contentious elements. You know, one of the contentious elements uh, when the committee took it up last week was essentially the division of funding between uh, the National Science Foundation and uh, the uh, the national laboratories. 
and to the surprise of nobody, senators from states that have national laboratories, uh, which include New Mexico, California, Illinois, and some others, wanted a lot of the NSF money diverted to the labs and not to go to the National Science Foundation. And the people who wrote the bill in the first place, who gave most of the money to the NSF, had a different view. In the end, the committee uh, agreed with the, uh, the labs. But uh, today's news was they appear to have cut a deal to, you know, send some of the money back to the National Science Foundation. So that's a good sign because it means they're dealing. If they're dealing, it means it's going to pass. Yeah, it's a good balancing act. Uh, and that helps them get to a product that is a centrist product. Because given the scope of this and the, the interest from members across the spectrum, you want something that comes from the middle out rather than that is a product of one party or the other or one extreme or the other. I'm pleased to see the development. Look, the, the probably the least controversial part of this is funding the CHIPS Act. We've talked about it before on the program. That was authorized but not appropriated, not funded in the National Defense Author Reauthorization Act at the end of uh, the last session of Congress. And that's basically a matching program. So when states or local localities provide incentives for construction of of uh, semiconductor facilities, uh, there's a federal match now. So I think that's very sensible. But I'm also pleased to see uh, this is another uh, heartland foreign policy person. You remember the great Richard Luger, Senator Luger, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in his time, and Representative Lee Hamilton, Evansville, Indiana, a longtime foreign policy and national security expert and, and greatly respected. Senator Todd Young of Indiana seems to be filling that role again. He's a fairly interesting individual. He's a graduate of the Naval Academy, was a Marine officer, and uh, he also has a, a business degree, an MBA from the University of Chicago. So interesting, interesting set of talents that he brings to this, but it's a good vote of bipartisanship when you see people like Senator Young engaged with the majority leader, Schumer, and getting something done. All right, guys. Now, this brings me to another issue that I wanted to bring up with you today, and that is the United States EU tariff truce. Because as you know, some of the products that were set by the EU on June 1st to double were products that are very close to my heart, Harley Davidson, Levi's, and Jack Daniels. So it looks like our great American jeans, our great American bourbon, although it's really called Tennessee whiskey when you talk about Jack Daniels and Harley, is back in business, right? You dodged a bullet, yes. Dodged a bullet, good, all right. Now, I do have Levi's, I do have Jack Daniels. My wife has not let me get a Harley yet, but yet is the operative word. So what are we looking at here between the US and the EU? Is it likely that the US and EU will reach a decision to remove the tariffs? Not right away. I mean, I think the fact that the EU is held off is a good sign. And I confess to be a little bit surprised. I asked a reporter the question of what did they get for that from us? Uh, and the answer was nothing, that it was a reciprocal gesture. And it's following along the also the mutual truce that was declared in the Boeing Airbus case, where uh, both sides have held back further retaliation in an effort to solve that. And here the EU uh, has done the same thing in an effort to, to solve this case. So it will produce a, a discussion. I think I'm heartened a little bit because I think what they seem to want to do uh, is what I think we had recommended in the past, which is to recognize that the problem in this industry is overcapacity. And most of it is caused by the Chinese who now have 
literally, I think, more than half of the total world capacity in steel. And they just keep, I mean, they close some old plants, but they keep cranking out new ones. The answer to overcapacity is if you can't get the other country to, to solve it on its own, is to make them eat it, you know, force the surplus back into the country that's producing it, which means everybody has to line up with tariffs or other restrictive actions against the, the offending party. And, you know, the Trump approach, which didn't work, which we're seeing the legacy of now, it was classic Trump, which is, you know, let's hit everybody with these tariffs. So we hit them in the face and that will force them to do the same thing to the Chinese. Well, that didn't work. What it forced them to do was to retaliate against us. Uh, I think the Biden idea is smarter, which is, let's see if we can get an agreement on a global safeguard where everybody, particularly Europe in this case, approaches the Chinese the same way we do with a collective tariff. And so we don't have to assess one against Europe or assess one against uh, you know, Japan or anybody else, but we all act together against China. Now, that may turn out to be very difficult to negotiate because, as we've said previously, European business is not quite as concerned about China as our business is at this point. I think Bill's right about the notion that this is a little bit of a truce and it's a pullback from the, uh, the hostility between the U.S. and Europe that was really generated by the Trump administration on this issue. These are the Section 232 tariffs. The 1962 Act gave national security authorization for tariffs. President Trump's campaign on this as a candidate, he had a big event in Pittsburgh where he mentioned specifically the use of Section 232 on steel and aluminum, and everybody ignored it. And then he became president and he Im implemented it almost instantly. And everyone resented it, including U.S. lawmakers and all the people the tariffs affected. So now that we've turned the page on that administration, it's a nice opportunity from a negotiating standpoint for, you, for Europe to take a pause and look for a way to for both parties to do what's, what's probably a better thing to do uh, than the tariffs. I would also note that it, in the face of reality, steel prices are through the roof in the United States. Uh, the, the stocks are low, like with many hard goods, that are suddenly in demand as the economy reopens. The products used by steel fabricators and manufacturers of steel-containing products is in very short supply, and uh, the tariffs only make matters worse. So uh, about a reality here is not a bad thing. Bill, where do you think this is going? Do you think that the decision you know, to come to some truce bodes well for the future of the transatlantic relationship? And are there any tensions that linger? Well, I think there are tensions that linger. I did a column on this a week or so ago. We seem to be taking some delight in making the Europeans look hypocritical, which I have to say is not a very hard task. And, you know, we undercut them on the, the vaccine waiver issue. I mean, I think the United States made a mistake, but, but one of the things it did was rather cl clever is by supporting the waiver that made the Europeans uh, look bad and made us look good in the eyes of developing countries and put the Europeans in, a, in an awkward position because now it's sort of up to them to decide if they want to block the, the, the waiver or not. And we kind of did the same thing with the digital services tax. We kind of put the Europeans in a complicated position having, you know, with the Trump administration basically having stiffed those negotiations for years, the Biden people came in and the first thing they did was drop the most untenable proposal that the Trump administration had made. 
uh, and then turned around and produced their own own proposal, proposing a, a global corporate tax that was higher than what the Europeans, it was double what the Europeans had proposed, which, you know, I think is more revenue generating, put the Europeans in the complicated position, irritated the Irish, uh, whose corporate tax is below everybody else's. But then when all also went on to, to say, you know, instead of the EU, EU digital services tax, which effectively reaches maybe six or seven companies, all but one of which I think are, are American, the Biden approach is let's tax the 100 biggest companies, according to a formula. And, you know, this also put the Europeans in an awkward position. You know, the American companies still get hit under Biden's proposal, but now they've got company, uh, including a lot of European companies and a lot of Chinese companies. Once again, it kind of puts the Europeans on on defensive. You know, was your whole strategy here to stick it to the Americans or were you actually trying to do something that was fair and equitable? And we'll see. So I think we put them in complicated positions on on some things. And on steel, we'll see. I mean, they have more leverage on steel because they've retaliated against us and they have the option. I mean, they were going to double the duties, which would have uh, really made things difficult for Harley, for example. But uh, getting them to, you know, take a, a global approach to this, I think will be hard. They'll say, yeah, let's talk about that. And then I think the details will turn out to be very, very difficult. We're not getting along in the, in the main with uh, Europeans. I agree with what you said about particularly the, the vaccine waivers. We got maybe, maybe some short-term likes and, and smiley faces from the developing countries and, and from uh, President Biden's own leftist base. But beyond that, uh, I don't think that's going to be a lasting solution. And I'd, I'd just as soon unwind these national security tariffs and get to work on what the real problem of global overcapacity, if there's a way to solve that. So for me, so the sooner the better in uh, eliminating the 232 tariffs. All right. So we're going to keep our eyes on this and see what happens. But in the meantime, another thing has happened. The U.S. filed its first labor complaint with Mexico under the new USMACA. This was one of the provisions that was a fairly substantial change in its operations versus the old uh, NAFTA rules for dispute settlement. It was key to getting the support of organized labor, and we'll see how it works. Uh, I think it's important to note that previously, these the rules about when you file a dispute, how you file it, and, and how the dispute is judged, in other words, what the, what the conditions you have to meet to have it be a valid dispute, used to be reciprocal and burdens on all parties. And frankly, they were. it was very hard to win a case, mostly because of the defensive interests that got built into the rules. And that was a big change. It used to be U.S. had a lot of defensive interests on labor rules, for instance. We are a signatory to very few of the international labor organizations. The ILO uh, has a number of charters on specific issues that the United States has not signed. So essentially reading international law, international labor principles into trade agreements has always been a barrier for the U.S. itself. And what we did in this case is, first of all, there are no reciprocal obligations anymore that bind all three parties. In the USMACA labor uh, chapter, what you have is a specific obligation, U.S.-Mexico and, and Canada-Mexico, where all the obligations fall on the Mexicans. And Basically, we reversed many of the burdens that you had to overcome. In previous trade agreements, you had to demonstrate that this was something that affected trade. And now that, that is assumed to be true unless proven otherwise. So 
it's a standard that will allow for more cases to proceed. It's not reciprocal. I don't mean that it's not fair, but we'll see how it works. Mexico seems to, to bear the burden on all this. Uh, but then again, they're the low-wage country. So, Bill? I think the thing that's interesting about it is that there, there have been, the Americans have filed two cases against Mexico, uh, one by the AFL-CIO and one by the U.S. government. The Mexicans promptly responded uh, by filing a complaint against the Americans, alleging mistreatment of migrant workers. And I don't know what the, the facts of, of the case, but I think it's clear that the Mexican approach to this is, you know, we're not simply going to be the target. We're going to complain, too. And we've got grievances. And the way you're treating our people uh, doesn't make us happy. So don't expect us to just sort of, you know, sit back and be a punching bag for uh, the AFL-CIO. We're going to pursue our own complaints against the Americans. And we'll see what happens. Hopefully, they'll both be adjudicated fairly on, you know, in each country, and there won't be a need to resort to uh, you know, the, the further elements of the dispute settlement process, but too early to say. But uh, the one thing you can say is it's not going to be one-sided. You know, it's not going to be only the U.S. complaining about the Mexicans. You know, this is going to go both ways. Well, so what are the key priorities for the Biden administration and USTR tie during these you smack of discussions. Yeah, keep in mind that for over 20 years, NAFTA was a major source of complaint for Democrats in Congress. And almost all of them voted in support and all the leadership supported the final package of USMCA, which, as Bill correctly points out, now Ambassador Ty was the key staffer in making the changes uh, that were required to get that, that broad-based support of the party. So I think she's uh, in a position where she both understands the issue, but will feel the need to deliver. Well, she has a big investment in, in making the system work because she was in, intimately involved in this negotiation. This was something that was, that was not there when uh, Bob Lighthizer negotiated it. And it was one of the things that the Speaker insisted on if the House were going to approve the agreement. And it was Catherine that had to put it all together. So she has a considerable personal interest in making it work. And I think what that means is you're going to see very aggressive enforcement from USTR and an assistance, insistence that the Mexicans uh, meet the letter of their obligations and holding them accountable if they don't. You know, this happened last week, so it's, it's too early to say whether the Mexicans are going to try to get out of it uh, or whether the process is, is going to turn out to be flawed. But the one thing you can be sure of is that, that Ambassador Ty is going to be watching it very, very carefully. All right, guys. This has been a lot of ground to cover. And I certainly appreciate it. I know our listeners appreciate it. Thank you very much for shedding light on all these issues. And, and we'll be back next week to talk about them and a lot of other things on the next episode of The Trade Guys. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.